Hello, and welcome back to Tabling the Podcast. My name is Ariana Karp, and I'm here with a wonderful group of actors that are going to take us through Act One of The Two Gentlemen of Verona. Hey, how about it? We've moved on to a comedy. It's our first comedy, everyone. Um, So at Tabling here, what we try to do to quote our guest director uh, for Hamlet, Emma Rosa Went, is to come to a collective interpretation of the play through the discussions that we have together. And I really love that. When she said that, it like just hit me like an arrow through the heart is that really we're we're turning the process of table work into a product that we're sharing with our audience, which is really unusual. I think it's it's more unusual than I sort of think it is because I've been (laughs) living and working and breathing this. Um, So essentially what I'm very interested in investigating in this play and I'm, I'm very thrilled to say this is uh, a play that I do not know well which um, most of the shows that we have done so far I do know very well so um, I'm really excited to explore this with all of you and explore the problems as well there, there's some really disturbing moments in this play um, and I think too often we think, oh, it's a comedy. It's like light and frothy. And I just want to bring it the, at the top um, something that apparently Joe Papp used to say of the public theater, that with all of Shakespeare's comedies, it's like it's like uh, Irish coffee. It's like there's a layer of froth of sweet cream at the top, but underneath there's really dark, deep, delicious things going on. So I want to get into those. And conversely, in, you know, in the tragedies, like, where is the light and frothy sweetness, too? But there's some really intense moments in this play. And I'm, I'm looking forward to sort of seeing, especially, how do we resolve this play? <laughs> how do we get to the end? Um, so, yeah, let's go through and everyone if you could tell me your name and for our audience because i know all of your names your name what characters you're playing um where you are because that's always fun during covid where are you spending covid and um also what your history is with this play so jane why don't we start with you please all right it's wonderful to be here ariana my name is jane henserling i live in santa fe new mexico and I will be playing Eglamour, Lucetta, Pantino, and the second outlaw in The Two Gentlemen of Verona. And I have never read this play until now. I've never seen it performed. Um, I don't think it's performed super often. And um, it's such an early play. And I think a lot of kinks get worked out and a lot of tropes get explored. And I think it's gonna be fun to dig in and, and connect to other other Shakespeare works as well as see sort of what we think of this in its own right. Absolutely. Thank you so much. And, and I, I, I love what you said there about like, you can see the beginnings, right. Of a lot of tropes and a lot of things that Shakespeare explored much more in later plays. Um, But you see the, the seeds being planted as it were, I was just gardening. So I'm just thinking about seeds. Um, (laughs) Sam, Gee, could you, why don't you go next? Um, my name is Sam Gilroy. Uh, I'm playing Valentine for this 
reading. Um, I'm based in New York City. Uh, I have not actually, I've read snippets of this play for classes in the past, but I've never actually explored the whole text before. But I am particularly fascinated with uh, authors sort of juvenilia, like their, their really early works. Um, I think that um, it's really interesting to explore them and see what themes are there from the very beginning and what gets completely dropped out. Um, so I'm really excited to explore this. Wonderful. Thank you, Sam. Um, Izzy, let's go with you. Hi, I'm Izzy Karp. Um, I'm in Madison, Wisconsin right now. Um, I'll be playing Lance or, you know, Lance if you're here, um, and Third Outlaw. And I've been in this play once, two years ago, which I can't believe it's two years already. But uh, uh, so I so I have a, a little bit of knowledge of the play, I guess, through that, although it was most of the main roles were gender swapped. So it, it was a bit of a different you still have the issues you have just different issues um when it comes especially to the end of the play which um I don't know if it made it more palatable or less so who knows but I've been in it once so fabulous thank you Izzy and Izzy is my beloved sis I'm so excited to get to work with her again um Colin my oh. beloved sort of brother <laughs> Yes, uh, my name's Colin Coors. I'm uh, coming to you from the same couch as Izzy Carp here in Madison, Wisconsin. And um, my experience with this play is uh, similar to Izzy's in that um, I saw Izzy in the performance uh, where they had it titled The Two Gentlewomen of Verona. So um, fun there. Uh, it, it was a, a production or rather a theater going experience where you were encouraged to bring a bottle of wine. So I can't say I uh, consumed the entire play, but um, I am vaguely aware of the plot and I'm excited to dive into it once again. Oh, I am so happy with my casting choices. <laughs> I just want to know if you consumed the entire bottle of wine. I know, right? <laughs> Such will not be recorded. <laughs> Um, Sam B, please. Thank you, Colin and Izzy. Um, hey, everyone. Uh, my name is Sam Blinn. Um, I'm going to be playing Julia in Two Gents. Uh, I, so I don't really have a relationship with this play, um, but I was excited when, Ariana, when you asked me to be a part of it, because it is, I always say that this is my least favorite Shakespeare play. <laughs> so I really want my mind to be changed. I mean, the only I've seen it once and it was my freshman year of college. Um, and it was a, it was a student performance and the student actors were great, but I just had a lot of issues with the play, which is understandable given what happens at the end. So I'm, I'm curious to see, uh, what we can dig up in our discussions and how, Maybe my mind will be changed. We'll find out. Stay tuned. That was silly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Fabulous. Thank you, Sam. Uh, Miles, please. Uh, hello. My name is uh, Miles Blitch, B-L-I-T-C-H. And uh, <laughs> I'm uh, coming to you from uh, Santa Fe, New Mexico. And uh, I will be playing uh, Antonio, first outlaw, host, servant, and... Churio, um, 
I'm familiar with the uh, storyline of this play after reading it in a uh, reading it in a guide to Shakespeare's plays, but uh, I think the only the only time you could say I've seen a performance of it are like the little snippets you might you might have seen in Shakespeare in Love. So it'll be uh, it will be uh, interesting to kind of go down into like uh, one of his one of Shakespeare's earlier and uh, more obscure plays, like uh, like the others have said, and you know, kind of. Uh, get into something that's both uh, kind of kind of something that's, that has a lot of uh, in kind of both the beginnings of tropes as they said and also some unpalatable elements to it but uh, it'll be uh, it'll be interesting to look at uh, kind of those parts and see how that uh, see what angle we can approach them from because like you know sometimes you need to uh, sometimes people need to go outside their comfort zones to know what their comfort zones are so I'm and I'm honored to. This is my first time working with tabling, and uh, I'm so honored to be a part of it. Thank you, Ariana. Thank you, Miles. We're so happy to have you joining us. And last but not least, Mitch. Hey, uh, I'm Mitchell Kawash, uh, coming to you from New York. Um, I'm going to be reading Proteus uh, as we work through this play, and yeah, this is similarly to some other people, one of the Shakespeare plays that I know the least about. Um, I have read it once. A friend of mine who has a theater company um, got uh, basically a group of people together to read through, I think, like three plays that she was choosing between because uh, she was going to do a Shakespeare show and, and just wanted to hear them out loud as she made her decision. So I read it then. She did not choose this play. Uh, so, um, but I am really excited to dig into it and to do some like genuine table work on it um, since I have no experience with it. Fantastic. And we have two other actors um, who will be joining us uh, for, for act two. So I'll have them answer the same questions then. Um, and I just wanted to say, as, as I said, I, I, I don't have, I've never directed or acted in this show. However, I did recently watch a production that the RSC put on um, that made it like they, it was really beautiful. The production values were very high <laughs> to quote um, <laughs> slings and arrows Um but I still like by the end of it, I was like, I don't know what I just watched. Like, what, what was that? Um, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to delving in. And I also wanted to just celebrate the fact after, cause I've, I've just been um, editing the last couple episodes for Henry the fourth part two, which has like a bajillion characters. And this cast list is the shortest cast list in the entire canon. And I just want to just have a it's moment. It's sort of cool, right? <laughs> it's like, oh my God, <laughs> they all fit on one page. Like, <laughs> um, So anyway, <laughs> without, without further ado, let's jump right in. I think I'm going to sort of do what I've started to do in some of the more recent ones, which is to kind of um, have us pause at the sort of French scene breaks. And by that, I mean, uh, whenever a new character enters or another character exits, because that's kind of a nice unit 
to, to sort of deal with. So Valentine and Proteus, here we go. Act one, scene one of Two Gentlemen of Verona, whenever you're ready. Cease to persuade my loving Proteus. Homekeeping youth have ever homely wits. Were it not affection chains thy tender days to the sweet glances of thy honored love. I, I rather would entreat thy company to see the wonders of the world abroad than living dully sluggerized at home, wear out thy youth with shapeless idleness. But since thou lovest, love still and thrive therein, even as I would when I to love begin. Wilt thou be gone, sweet Valentine, adieu. Think on thy Proteus, when thou haply seest some rare noteworthy object in thy travel. Wish me partaker in thy happiness, when thou dost meet good hap. And in thy danger, if ever danger do environ thee, commend thy grievances to my holy prayers, for I will be thy beadsman, Valentine. And I'll pray for my success. Upon some book I love, I'll pray for thee. <laughs> That's on some shallow story of deep love, how young Leander crossed the Hellspont. That's a deep story of a deeper love, for he was more than overshoes in love. Is true, for you are over boots in love, and yet you never swam the hellspont. Over the boots. Nay, give me not the boots. No, I will not, for it's boots thee not. What? To be in love. Where scorn is bought with groans, coy looks with heart sore sighs, one fading moment's mirth, with twenty watchful, weary, tedious nights. If happily won, perhaps a hapless gain, if lost, why then a grievous labor won? However, but a folly bought with wit, or else a wit, but... Ah, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> if lost, why then a grievous labor won? However, but a folly bought with wit, or else a wit by folly vanquishing. So by your circumstance, you call me fool. So by your circumstance, I fear you'll prove. Tis love you cavil at. I am not love. Love is your master, for he masters you, and he that is so yoked by a fool, methinks should not be chronicled for wise. Yet writers say, as in the sweetest bud the eating canker dwells, so eating love inhabits in the finest wits of all. And writers say, as the most forward bud is eaten by the canker ere it blow, even so by love, the young and tender wit is turned to folly blasting in the bud, losing his verdure, verdure ver, uh, pronunciation here, please. Verger, I think. Verger. I think Verger. would fit the... Verger. Yeah. <clears throat> and writers say, as the most forward bud is eaten by the canker ere it blow, even so by love, the young and tender wit is turned to folly blasting in the bud, losing his verdure even in the prime and all the fair effects of future hopes. But wherefore waste I time to counsel thee that art a votary to fond desire? Uh, once more adieu, my father at the road expects my coming there to see me shit. And thither will I bring thee, Valentine. Sweet Proteus, no. Now let us take our leave. To Milan, let me hear from thee by letters of thy success in love, and what news else betideth here in absence of thy friend, and I likewise will visit thee with mine. All happiness perchance to thee in Milan. As much to you at home. And so, farewell. Great. You know what? Actually, 
Mitch, why don't we have yeah, you do this last sure. speech and then yeah. we'll and then we'll pause. Yeah. He after honor hunts, I after love. He leaves his friends to dignify them more. I leave myself, my friends, and all for love. Thou, Julia, thou hast metamorphosed me, made me neglect my studies, lose my time, war with good counsel, set the world at naught, made wit with musing weak, heart sick with thought. Lovely. Thank you. So let's just pause there. Oh my God. How many times was the word love oh said God. in that first section? Hold, like, talk about Shakespeare's use of repetition. It's like, whoa buddy get a new word like it's just it's kind of amazing um mitch and sam tell me what what are your impressions of these characters and their relationship um i mean i'm gonna take it really lowbrow at first but it kind of reminds me of the scene i think from the 40 year old version where the two of them are playing video games and it, it doesn't work anymore in 2021 but they're they're just they're, they're not really paying, like they're just sort of bantering with one another, trying to one up each other with jokes. Um, and and it, 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 they're ribbing each other, but it's playful and you get the sense of how much those two guys clearly like each other's company in that ribbing with one another. Yeah, I think, and I think it's important for the story, right? For Shakespeare to establish that like right off the bat. I think <laughs> they clearly like really love each other and they are expressive about it um i'm just thinking like Proteus' first speech about valentine is like pretty um, men don't always talk to each other this way um you know like wish me partaker in thy happiness when thou dost meet good hap and like it, it's it's very um intimate um but yeah. i i thought of juliet with the wilt thou be gone it is not yet near day like there's something almost romantic about the speech yeah and I actually agree I agree with Sam I, I actually I was thinking during that about how this is like a big day for them like they I think they grew up together I get the sense and, and Valentine's like leaving probably for the first time and I, I do think Valentine is like doing the ribbing thing repeatedly and it sort of feels like Proteus is joining in when he's called upon to but like is not naturally in that same state like he wants to have a good goodbye how many, I mean, because right off the bat, the two things that really stick out for me is, is that talk about the young writer thing, just like right off the bat, the first line or the first sentence of the play, I believe is seven lines long. And it is one twisty sentence to get through. And like, I, when I first read the play, like my first thought was like, oh my God, I'm the opening of this thing. And that's like the first line that I'm going to have to track the through line through. But I also think it's fascinating that how many Shakespeare plays start with a conversation that has clearly been happening that you're jumping in the middle of, right? This is not like the start of a scene with two characters coming together. The first line is cease to persuade my loving Proteus clearly they're walking onto the stage having already had Proteus be like, no, you can't go, please don't go. And I think it's really fascinating because off the top of my head, I, I really, like off the top of my head, I cannot think of another Shakespeare play that starts mid-conversation. Lear. I, thank Lear? you, Izzy. I was just going to say Lear. Um, 
but it's a weird yeah i i agree i i don't think it's it's that um it's that common especially in the earlier plays there's much more of a ta-da it's time for a show it, here we go you know kind of dichotomy between like I think it's a terrible sentence to start your like poor audience <laughs> off with. On the other hand, like talk about an instinct for drama. Starting a scene in the middle of the scene is always the most captivating way to pull your audience in. You know, you have this whole acting yeah, concept yeah. of, you know, am I, where am I coming from and where am I going? Am I rushing off to a thing? Am I, am I being pulled by the thing that's behind me? And to start the drama out in the middle of a conversation between these two men really artfully says what their relationship is and immediately pulls you forward in your seat. And so I think it's this really cool dichotomy here of like his instincts are clearly already on point. And then he just like overwrote the first sentence of the play and nobody was like, dude, maybe, <laughs> maybe make it easier. Um, so that's my sort of first like initial thought coming into this. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's great. And I think it's so the verb that sticks out to me sluggardized at home. What an amazing like strange word which is sort of you know like a made lazy, like a slug. Like a slug. And um being out here in in northern California in the place of banana slugs. Yeah, they move real slow. Um, and <laughs> I think there is an interesting invocation of Proteus as a sort of like monk or nun, right? A devotee of, of love. But there is an interesting, it's almost like Proteus is so steeped in love, like that's his thing, that that is... And also literature, right? They they bring up a lot of literature, and um, one of uh, Shakespeare's favorite um, mythical references of Leander and Hero, right? That he uses all over the place, um, including Much Ado and As You Like It, right? They, there's referenced in both of those plays. Um, but the what also strikes me is a young playwright that's really smart and knows they're really smart and really likes wordplay. Um, because like a lot of these, you know, um, it, it, it was so delightful having a guest director come in and work on Hamlet. And for our audience, if you haven't listened to the Hamlet one, I would highly recommend that you do because Emma's just incredible. Um, but the there's so many times even later in him, you know, like beautified is a, is a vile phrase, right. Which is something uh, that Polonius says when he's like in the middle of reading Hamlet's letter to Ophelia and he's like, beautified is a, it's a vile phrase. Um, and then the mobile queen. Oh, that's good. Mobile queen is good. And we asked our dramaturg Isabel, um, like, what is mobile? Where does that come from? And she was like, yeah, so Shakespeare made it up. So anytime he makes up a word, he has another character be like, oh, that's really good. That's a good word, you know? So I feel like there's a little bit of that going going on here with the like over shoes, over boots, which like here means like boot deep. 
give me not the boots um, was a phrase that meant don't make fun of me. Like uh, to give someone the boot would be to like make fun of them. And then it boots the not, it helps you not, right? So he's taking one word and sort of turning it around as many ways as he can to sort of squeeze as much meaning as he can out of this one thing. So that definitely, I mean, the repetition of words and the words changing their meaning between speakers is something that we see in almost all the plays. And it's just amazing that to me, even these first three, these first three pages of the play, that is basically what is happening in terms of the rhythm of their banter together. Um, yeah, Mitch, did you have any, any more thoughts about, about Proteus? And then also this, this wonderful, sweet little speech that he gets about, hunting honor versus hunting love yeah well one one thing as we've been talking that i that i noticed that i didn't notice actually while while reading it um the conception of love that that valentine is uh putting forth is that like love's in the way right of like the i guess manly things that are productive things that they're supposed to be doing that right like that loves makes him sluggardized and proteus defends love uh you you said like devotee of of love or like a monk or something like that um and and really all of Proteus's lines while Valentine is on stage are in defense of love or going like well that affects everybody and then as soon as Valentine leaves he picks up Valentine's logic which is like love's in the way so he like admits that he also thinks about about love that way as, as being something that is, that is in the way, which is something he can't admit um, in front of Valentine. It, 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 right off the bat, uh, I, I, I see groundwork for the problematic things that happen later, right? Like the way that they think about women, the way that they think um, about, about love as like secondary at best to their relationship. Um, with each other or, or yeah, what they're supposed to be doing. I have a maybe rather provocative question for you, but I think as I've been sort of reading and rereading this play in preparation for this, I'm really curious as to the sort of status relationship between Valentine and Proteus and how that's established within right now. Cause this is literally the only time we see them together until Proteus falls in love with Valentine's girl. Right. So this is the only time we have to sort of establish that. And I, I don't know why, but actually something about what you just said, Mitch, makes me think that perhaps he does feel a lower status to Valentine. I was, I was reading about a production history where there was this, of course, this happened in the seventies, but it was like, they were beach bums in the first scene and I'll just show you this picture this is the valentine and the proteus in the first scene and like one of them is like you know like oh man I'm off to see the world I'm an adventurer and the other one sort of has like a little bit of an inferiority at least the way I was reading about this um in this in the sort of stage history and so that was just something I wanted to clock that there does seem to be a, an imbalanced status interaction between the two of them. Yeah, Sam. Well, I think it's very, like at least from the, the lines that were in my mouth, it is very clear that 
Valentine thinks of himself as higher status of the two of these two men. Like, I, I don't think if there's any, uh, if Proteus has any, like there would have was the one that tried to, he, there's one point where he's just like, no, sweet Proteus, no, is the entirety of the uh, Injan line there at that thing, which I think is really interesting. And I, I'm just going to get it kicking off at the top since I, I think that we all kind of, having read the play before we sat down and looking through it, with the problem of it, um, and it kind of really keyed in when you just showed that image. And I'm sorry, all the podcast listeners, maybe when you post it, you can like- I will post the image there. when I yeah the website, yeah. Which is incel culture. Um, and, and, you know, I think of that right at the top, uh, with the, with the Proteus, thou Julia has, thou hast metamorphosed me, like this whole idea that it's this woman that's doing something to him and via the internet and how things move, there's so many sort of memes that start off as one thing and other people co-opt. And one of the incel memes that people, at least on Twitter use to make fun of them is this the Chad X versus the Virgin Y is kind of, and you can use whatever you want. Like you could do like the Chad Shakespeare versus like the Virgin Marlowe or something. And then, and then you, but it's this image thing. If you, if you look it up, you can see multiple examples of it. But when you showed up that image, that image that you showed up is that me, right? Really, really buff guy standing next to kind of a more spindly, like other one that's in there. And I think that that relationship, oddly enough, is right here. Valentine knows what he wants. He's about to go and get it. He's like, I dithered here long enough. I have action and I have momentum. Dude, you're languishing here. Like, pick yourself up, dust yourself off and go do something. And, and I really do think that there is a modern interpretation of this play where you could lean into that incel thing a little bit, where it does become about this idea of like, Mm, the sexual marketplace and I'm failing and if I could only get laid and if only Julia loved me like my life would be good and I'd be a good scholar and my issues with my studies are because of this woman and not because of me um and so I just wanted to get that out right at the beginning (laughs) yeah I I agree. I agree with all the stuff that's been said about status. I Sam, I've been having the same sort of instinct um, as I read this. I think that Proteus thinks of himself as the like gentler one, uh, and Valentine as the more uh, maybe manly and like is is like getting what he wants. Right? Proteus is like really smart. I think that's clear. But Valentine is like taking the lead on the wordplay. Like, and I, yeah, I think that there. I think it would surprise Proteus if you told him uh, right now, it would shock him if you told him right now what he was going to do over the course of the rest of the play. Cause I think he thinks of himself um, as not the like manly one. And I think he's yeah frustrated by that. And when you pair that with this conception of women as the problem <laughs> um, that that is like really potentially dangerous. Yeah. And thank you. Thank you so much for pointing that out too, that there, that I think, I think that's really important that we don't project the ending in this first scene, you know, that is just, you know, to, to go back to, (laughs) uh, four of us here went to Lambda, but to, to go back to something that was said, I swear to God in every single class, don't play the end of the, don't play the end of the play in the scene play the scene for what it is, right? Don't play the end of the play right now. Yeah, Sam. 
just what the, I, and, and I'm sure that the women that are here um, can speak more to it, but I, I really also get that, that um, it's sort of like the jock and the quote unquote nice guy, right? It's the nice guy who's done all the nice things. And why won't you love me when I've been so nice? Like that yeah. sort of is going to be, I think one of those vibes that goes on because I'm, I'm sure that, you know, I, without saying it, I just knowing having plenty of women friends, um, you know, there's that guy who's just always so, so, so nice. And then finally, when you reject him, it's just this snap of violence or verbal abuse or all this stuff that comes out at the end. And so I really do think that there is like almost like uh, the jock best friend with like his nerdy friend and like they've gone through. And, and so there is love between these two men. But I think that already here, you kind of almost see the thing that's going to cleave um, the relationship down the line too there at the beginning that that image is cool the beach bum idea is cool <laughs> also because like i've been living in california for the past year it just like really resonates to me <laughs> um yeah let us move on because i i want to get into a totally different kind of verbal uh play which is with speed who is such an aptly named character um and let's yeah let's go through now just to note that we have been in verse and now we're going to switch to prose as soon as speed arrives can i ask um, one quick technical question oh, yeah, i noticed that milan scanned as millen yeah. last time should yep. it be millen yeah it should okay, it's cool. the same in the tempest he's the duke of millen not gotcha. milano although there this uh the rsc production that they had a whole like strange sort of techno musical interlude where there was just like this gorgeous Italian woman who was like Milano like the <laughs> she was just like singing and I was like is are there other are there other lyrics or is it just Milano when he gets to Milan but whatever so Milan yes um yeah <laughs> and also to note that Proteus is sometimes said and this is uh true with Julia as well I was sort of scanning and Julia is sometimes disyllabic or two syllables and sometimes trisyllabic julia or julia and same with proteus sometimes proteus is proteus and sometimes it's proteus um just to say that names are <laughs> are a bit uh slippery in shakespeare's time and there's there's a great example of that in julius caesar that i'm working on that uh Revenge yourself alone on Cassius for Cassius is a weary of the world, you know, like two totally different ways of saying the name. Thank you, Dan, who brought that up today. Anywho, uh, let's go into this speed Proteus section and let's just take it through to the end of the scene. Sir Proteus, save you. Saw you my master. But now he parted hence to embark for Millen. Twenty to one then. He is shipped already and I have played the sheep in losing him. Indeed, a sheep doth very often stray, and if the shepherd be a while away. You conclude that my master is a shepherd, then, and I a sheep? I do. Why, then, my horns are his horns, whether I wake or sleep. A silly answer, and fitting well a sheep. This proves me still a sheep. True, and thy master a shepherd. Nay, that I can deny by a circumstance. It shall go hard, but I'll prove it by another. The shepherd seeks the sheep, and not the sheep the shepherd, but I seek my master, and my master seeks me not. Therefore, I am no sheep. The sheep for fodder follow the shepherd. The shepherd for food follows not the sheep. 
Thou for wages follows thy master. Thy master for wages follows not thee. Therefore thou art a sheep. Such another proof will make me cry back. But dost thou hear? Gavest thou my letter to Julia? I, sir, a lost mutton, gave your letter to her, a laced mutton, and she, a laced mutton, gave me, a lost mutton, nothing for my labor. Here's too small a pasture for such a store of muttons. If the ground be overcharged, you were best stick her. Nay, in that you are astray. T'were best pound you. Nay, sir, less than a pound shall serve me for carrying your letter. You mistake. I mean the pound, a pinfold. From a pound to a pin? Fold it over and over. Tis threefold too little for carrying a letter to your lover. But what said she? I. Nod I? Why, that's naughty. You mistook, sir. I say she did nod, and you ask me if she did nod, and I say I. And that set together is naughty. Now you have taken the pains to set it together. Take it for your pain. Take take it for your pains. No, no. You shall have it for bearing the letter. Well, I perceive I must be fain to bear with you. Why, sir, how do you bear with me? Mary, sir, the letter very orderly, having nothing but the word naughty for my pains. Beshrew me, but you have a quick wit. And yet it cannot overtake your slow purse. Come, come, open the matter in brief. What said she? Open your purse, that the money and the matter may be both at once delivered. Well, sir, here is for your pains. What said she? Truly, sir, I think you'll hardly win her. Why? Couldst thou perceive so much from her? Sir, I could perceive nothing at all from her. No, not so much as a ducat for delivering your letter. And being so hard to me that brought your mind, I fear she'll prove as hard to you in telling your mind. Give her no token but stones, for she's as hard as steel. What said she? Nothing? No, not so much as take this for thy pains. To testify your bounty, I thank you. You have tested me. In requital whereof, henceforth, carry your letters yourself. And so, sir, I'll commend you to my master. Go, go, be gone, to save your ship from wrack, which cannot perish having thee aboard, being destined to a drier death on shore. I must go send some better messenger. I fear my Julia would not deign my lines receiving them from such a worthless post. <laughs> Amazing. Um, Colin, tell me about, about speed. Uh. <laughs> Gotta love him. And I like how you're saying before with like, oh, these long multi-syllabic names and then there's speed, just speed, (laughs) monosyllabic speed, get, get in and out, get, do what you need to do. Um, so yeah, speed, what to say about speed? Well, um, at least from what we've covered just now, I can't really tell what his hopes and dreams are. So, um, we're, we're left with the content of his wit. Um, but I mean, I guess, yeah, we we have the the witty wise fool, and um, and then what? Like, what more does speed add to the trope? And um, it, at least for this scene right now, um, I I can't say much. I definitely enjoy the wit. I enjoy the humor here. Um, the just listening to um, the uh, French scene right before this, um, I th- hearing it out loud, um, I made the connection at least now, just um, how some of the banter goes back and forth feels parallel. 
And um, I know, uh, Mitchell, you had mentioned that it seems like um, Proteus takes on Valentine's vibe towards the end of the scene. And I feel like it can, in like, even within the pacing and how they banter back and forth, that seems to kind of be taken on. Um, something about the sheep line <laughs> triggered that feeling in me with um, <laughs> something that Valentine had said prior. Um, but yeah. Um, I love speed speeds having a good time i'm having a good time uh he <laughs> like it with, with the full characters they're like the, the first line here we're, we're defining him by his relationships to other people um yeah. so like he doesn't have a, a distinct plot outside of his service to others um mm. but i guess that al- allows you to learn him through the way he speaks and how he's interacting with those other people and um, so far, it's you know pretty standard witty, but nothing to, you know, what does it shake your hat at? <laughs> uh, or my favorite, well, one of my favorite lines from Twelfth Night: "Go shake your ears." Yeah, I I I do love this 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 banter back and forth and the <laughs> make me cry. Bah. Um, a laced mutton here means a courtesan or a prostitute, which I think is interesting that he's sort of making that. Um, and all of this, the Shakespeare loves, as I've discovered doing starting this project, Shakespeare loves coin jokes, like almost more than I, it, it's, there are so many complicated coin jokes. And there's one here at the bottom of our page five, um, Nay, in that you are a straight, twere best pound you, as in like literally you're a sheep that should be put in a pound for stray animals, like confined. And then, no, no, like give me I, I, like a pound. I, you don't need to pay me a pound. That's a huge amount of money. Like I just, I need something less, right? For delivering <laughs> that um, uh, thing. And then, no, 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 I wasn't going to pay you a pound. I mean, the pound, like I'm going to put you in a pound where stray animals go and then, you know, from a pound to a pin, like a trifle. So we just keep getting smaller, which with all of our um, witnesses, uh, Sam, tell us what you, what you posted here. The, the speed name meaning. Love it. <laughs> I just was really, I didn't want to like fully interrupt, but I was just really curious to why they would name a character speed. And so I just looked it up to see if there was any sort of meaning and mm-hmm. Um, it does come a, as a in, in, in England, English, nickname for a fortunate person. Um, and it comes from the Middle English sped for success, good fortune, and smooth progress. Um, and so I think that that's a really interesting name to give to this particular wise fool slash servant. Yeah. Well, and, and it play to me, the entrance of speed puts us in commedia somehow. Like the entrance of speed puts us into the smart servants and the sort of less smart masters, right? It, it, it puts us into Italian theater tradition. Um, and that, that's really what I, what I got. I, like, I, I would imagine that speed has some really interesting, like Lazzi, right? That like some cool acrobatic trick that, that speed would, um, do and and proteus how do you feel uh the character is sort of reacting to this totally different energy that's 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 entering his space yeah i mean i get the sense that he enjoys speed um 
in general and sort of for the first part of this scene right that like there's a trope in Shakespeare right with the fool like the king the king liking the fool to sort of like give him a little bit of pushback and I think masters and serve you know masters liking when servants give them a little bit of pushback um I think we this lends some credence to the assertion that Valentine in the previous scene is a little higher status than Proteus in that relationship because Proteus is very different I think in this one uh, now that he's the high status one, he's a lot less earnest, a lot more just like joining in, or I guess leading the rib, the the wordplay and like um, prodding speed to like make another joke, I think, or to do something else. And then I think eventually, like, uh, obviously, Purdy's needs something from Speed, which is a problem <laughs> um, at the end, which is like the information. Uh, so that gives Speed a little. an annoyingly large amount of power uh, at the end, I think, to Proteus. He's got to sort of deal with that. Um, I do think it's interesting that Proteus sent speed to Julia. So at the very least, they have a relationship, uh, speed and Proteus, yeah. Because as we're going to find out in act two, Proteus has a servant, Mr. Lancelot, (laughs) who has the, the best show stealing dog in the history of show stealing dogs um be, as we'll get to it and i'm so excited to talk about i i don't have someone cast as crab um i really wish i did have a a dog cast as crab but crab is one of my favorite characters in the whole oh my god oh yes please um sam has an amazing beautiful dog um but it's like the dog can do anything. The dog can be super well-behaved and the jokes are hilarious. The dog can be very badly behaved and the jokes are hilarious. Like the dog can do nothing and it's funny. The dog can like bark or sniff or like go off and it's funny. And it's like kind of genius um, to create this comedy because literally everyone, the audience is going to laugh no matter what. Um But yeah, I would love to sort of turn to our ladies. Oh, look at that pup. We're going to have to post a a couple photos here. So cute. (laughs) That'll be crab. So let me see here. Can I jump in before we move on? Oh, yeah, please. Yeah. Um, I think another interesting thing that you can see throughout this whole first scene is that we were talking about how, you know, Valentine is kind of the funnier one or the wittier one. And you see that kind of through this too. Like it's less, I mean, it's a servant. So it's less of a like, oh, am I not as cool as my friend thing? But um, like you kind of, again, see see, um, Proteus like kind of playing catch up with some of the jokes, I think. And just... I think that characterizes that just a little bit more as well. I mean, mm-hmm. this person is supposed to be really witty, so there's that. But um, mm-hmm. also, I just want to uh, shout out to the guy who played Speed in ours, Ian, who um, did an Italian American accent, and it was oh pretty hilarious. <laughs> Before we completely drop this scene, um, I find it amusing that a character named Speed opens his uh, scene with uh, not knowing the time and losing somebody <laughs> who left too early. Like, <laughs> love it. Absolutely. Um, like, what am I missing and what time is it? <laughs> like, yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. Um, 
let us move on to our two lovely ladies, Act One, Scene Two, Julia and Lucetta. And they are, let's go through, um, let's go through Julia, your first speech. Okay. Um, quick, quick pronunciation question, just because yeah, uh, of I'm scanning it right now. Am I going to be saying parlay in the, in my third Parl. Parl. It is I think parl. just one cent of one syllable. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah, it didn't it didn't fit otherwise. Okay. Lovely. Cool. But say, Lucetta, now we are alone. Wouldst thou then counsel me to fall in love? I, madam, so you stumble not unheedfully. Of all the fair resort of gentlemen that every day with Parl encounter me, in thy opinion, which is worthiest love? Please you repeat their names. I'll show my mind according to my shallow, simple skill. Hmm. What thinkst thou of the fair Sir Eglamour? As of a knight, well-spoken, neat, and fine. But were I you, he never should be mine. Hmm. What thinkst thou of the rich Mercatio? Well, of his wealth, but of himself, so-so. What thinkst thou of the gentle Proteus? Lord, Lord, to see what folly reigns in us. How now? What means this passion at his name? Pardon, dear madam, tis a passing shame that I, unworthy body as I am, should censure thus on lovely gentlemen. Why not on Proteus, as of all the rest? Then thus, of many good, I think him best. Your reason? I have no other but a woman's reason. I think him so because I think him so. And wouldst thou have me cast my love on him? Aye, if you thought your love not cast away. Why he, of all the rest, hath never moved me. Yet he, of all the rest, I think best loves ye. His little speaking shows his love but small. Fire that's closest kept burns most of all. They do not love that do not show their love. Oh. They love least that let men know their love. I would I knew his mind. Peruse this paper, madam. To Julia. Say, from whom? That the contents will show. Say, say who gave it thee? Sir Valentine's page, and sent, I think, from Proteus. He would have given it you, but I, being in the way, did in your name receive it. Pardon the fault, I pray. Now, by my modesty, a goodly broker. Dare you presume to harbor wanton lines, to whisper and conspire against my youth? Now, trust me, tis an office of great worth, and you an officer fit for the place. There, take the paper. See it be returned, or else return no more into my sight. To plead for love deserves more fee than hate. Will ye be gone? That you may ruminate. And yet I would had or looked the letter. It were a shame to call her back again and, and pray her to a fault for which I chide her. What a fool is she that knows I am a maid and wouldst not force the letter into my view? Since maids in modesty say no to that which they would have the proffer construe I. Oh, fie, fie. How wayward is this foolish love that, like a testy babe, will scratch the nurse and presently all humbled kiss the rod. How churlishly I chide, Lucetta hence, when willingly I would have had her here. How 
angrily I taught my brow to frown, and when inward joy enforced my heart to smile. My penance is to call Lucetta back and ask remission for my folly past. What ho, Lucetta! <laughs> Lovely. Let's pause there. Um, great. So, ladies, please give me your your sort of thoughts and feelings about about these two women, and particularly their their relationship. How, how long have they known each other, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. <laughs> I mean, I feel like they have to have known each other. I think Lucetta's been there since Julia was a babe. I mean, like just their relationship. It's it's very. It reminds me a lot of juliet and the nurse you know just in terms of their comfort with each other and julia's brashness with her and just like you know and also lucetta's in return you know lucetta's not i don't think isn't is scared to speak her mind in terms of like what she thinks julia should be doing also because julia is kind of a hot mess (laughs) (laughs) but she has to do it with at least False humility. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's like, oh, well, look at all these men and I'm such a proper noble woman. And then she's like, no, I actually love Proteus so much. Wait, where's the letter Come back? <laughs> no. So. Very- it also reminds me, it, it's so much like the scene in Merchant of Venice when Portia is asking her maidservant to mm-hmm. go through the, the list of suitors and, and tell her what she thinks of each of them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Totally. And a very, very, uh, thank you for pointing that out because once again, it's like we see, we see the seed sown um, and speaking of seed sown and repeated sounds, there's a lot of really interesting, like the, uh, Julia, that when willingly I would have had her here, you know, it's like, yeah, there's all of these, <laughs> like there's, it's like the sighing and the breath mm-hmm. is just really interesting. Um, I was having a bitch of a time trying to scan this scene um, because they, well, first of all, there's all these wonderful rhyming couplets that I think like mm-hmm. you just got to play those to the hilt, um, right. which I, I love because it's just like, right, this is another kind of banter, um, but we didn't have as much rhyming in the, in the first scene. So in this, I also see a parallel between Proteus and Speed and Lucetta and Julia and that it's like this super smart servant who's way who's thinking way ahead of like just like oh I know her she loves Proteus oh my god who is she kidding you know Mm -hmm. there's there's something but she does it very very delicately and I love that like the the sort of false modesty of like my shallow simple skill like oh I know it's not much but you know and then she she sort of takes them down in rhyme, you know, which is extraordinary that she does, you know, it's like Eglamore, fine mine and Mercatioso, so Proteus us, which, which I think is just so, so fun. Um, and and then the feminine see- version, right. Of the banter where yeah. it's in rhyme. And there are a lot of feminine endings too, with the, if you, when you scan it, it does it. There's a lot of trochees. It's, it's really yes. funky. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, yeah, it sort of like sets up the feminine version of the servant master relationship. Absolutely. And there's a whole bunch of threes. Like we suddenly go into not iambic pentameter anymore, mm-hmm. but we go into these little sort of like triplets um, at, at the bottom of page nine. I would, I knew his mind peruse this paper, ma, dumb. 
Um, <laughs> to Julia, say from who that the contents will show, say, say who gave it. The, these aren't shared lines so much as it, this is like stichomythia, right? Which is the sort of rapid fire back and forth that we see in a lot of Shakespeare's early plays, including like the histories, um, very famous scenes between like Lady Anne and Richard III yeah. and the Richard III uh, Queen Elizabeth scene has a lot of this there. It's not iambic pentameter, but it's a different kind of rhythm because it's this shared back and forth. Um, yeah, that definitely changes the, the delivery of those lines because I was, yeah. I was definitely, I was struggling through this part too, even when we were just reading it now because it kept feeling like, yeah, you're like empty, <laughs> empty verse. I was reading it as empty verse, but that's not what yeah. it was at all. It's, it's um, just really, it's extraordinary. And there's a lot yeah. of also, um, at one point, Lucetta starts speaking in Alexandrins, which listeners at some point in time, I'm going to do a special episode on rhythm because I, I throw around a lot of words about rhythm and I don't always explain them. So my apologies. But so here we go. Sir Valentine's page and sent. I think from Proteus, like there's, there's an Alexandrian is like an iambic pentameter line um, that has a whole extra foot, but there's a division in the middle. So it's three and three. So it's like, we keep getting these series of three. Go ahead, Sam, go ahead. <laughs> so I'm a huge Stephen Sondheim nut. Um, and he has these wonderful annotated, uh, he annotated all of his lyrics in these two books uh, called I'm Finishing the Hat and Look, I Made a Hat. And one of the things that I found really surprising and wonderful is he personally hates I Feel Pretty because when he looks at that song, he sees himself as a young man flexing how good he could rhyme. Like he can't stand it because he, he thinks it's a drivelish song which is just him masturbating to how good he is at rhyming and how nobody can do it like him. And then later on, you can see the mature version of that song in Try a Little Priest, where it's like him going back to that theme of how good can I rhyme, but how can I make it more involved in the story and fit better in the play? And this section right here feels like a young Shakespeare showing off just how clever and good he is at rhyming. because. With that line, so so, and or, or no, pardon me, you write Proteus us, but the whole rhyme is Proteus reigns in us. Um, and and that is just so showy and awesome. Like when I heard that when you guys were reading it, I inwardly groaned. And and I really do think that a lot of this sort of section here is this young guy who wants to prove just like and he flips into Alexandrians too. It's it's, it's look at how he can mess with rhymes and look at how he can mess with structure. And, you know, I, I just think it's a really interesting little bit of, of young Shakespeare coming out through the page specifically in this moment with flipping how, you know, the, the, the scan works in the lines. Izzy and or Colin? <laughs> Uh, so uh, right right before we were recording, I was, um, uh, well, first off, I discovered I still have access to my undergrad's database of um, like uh, documents, essays, everything. Um, and Don't I was, tell like, <laughs> I was uh, looking at critical approaches to this play and um, just discussion of rhythm and meter um, 
reminded me of uh, one, one of the articles was mentioning a pun that comes later on for my character. Have to centralize his run speed of um, <laughs> he uh, he mentions it's either like a, a, a limp foot or a lame foot that um, can loosely be used to describe the rhythm that's happening um, in the banter. So uh, keep an eye out for that one in the future. We're gonna we're gonna oh, look up those me. lame feet. <laughs> uh, what I what I also find really interesting here, because yes, it's very back and forth and like, and I think one thing you're seeing, I think it's interesting <laughs> seeing these early women characters from Shakespeare, um, because like yes, they have some of those seeds that we'll see later on. And it's it's fun and ooh, but also sometimes it's like okay, so they're doing the girly things and uh, yeah, ooh, which I do think um, the the this scene to me is actually one of the most interesting ones if it's gender swapped, like because a lot of the other it's like the big concepts, but this just like a back and forth between two people being like, no, I don't like that that one, but but maybe I, I don't know. Um, I feel like we're so used to seeing that as two women that it, it, it's kind of interesting when you give it to the two men. Um, so shout out to Lakeside Shakespeare for that. Um, but I don't know, I find those interactions more interesting than like the big overall, like what is it if a woman does this? But just like those little, those little things because you really are seeing such a trope here that we still, you know, people still, <laughs> write this scene and do a movie um and so absolutely I think it's it's interesting I think it's a really clever scene so it's it's I'm not saying they're it's just terrible or anything but it is such a like no I don't like that guy I kind of like that guy but don't (laughs) like it's just like okay okay yeah well, and it's even that like they still make both of those movies that the first scene, yeah. right the bromance movie they make and them and the two chicks talking about who's the hottest guy that's like oh, those movies make so much money it's just it's right now we're in a judd apatow film both the first scene and the second scene both belong in judd apatow movies yeah. and I don't mean, <laughs> rough, rough. it's not a ding it's not a, it's i don't mean that fully as a ding i mean that fully in like the we're still sort of in comedia even there and like the roots of what's dropped in Shakespeare's first play are still making bank at the box office yeah. these days. Oh, to clarify, but- that was not Judd Apatow's support on my behalf. <laughs> no, uh, we would never. <laughs> I, there is, and it's interesting, the early, right, these are two early female characters. I do want to point out a line that stuck out to me that, is very troubling is one of Julia's lines. The since maids in modesty say no to that, which they would have the proffer construe. I like a dude wrote that. Yep. Like that is, you know what I mean? Like there is something so masculine. There's such a masculine idea of the way that women think and behave encapsulated in that. Um, well, yeah. And it's just, it's just another setup ready for shadow. Yeah. Like that's exactly what it is. It's just another setup for like the problematic things that are to come. Yeah. I just wanted to flag that. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's like the me too movement, like captured. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. I mean, I'm actually, it's so funny. I, I, yeah, I'm, I find myself already being like, I want to do this play in all of its messiness. Like I, I totally want to put this play on and have people go, Oh my God, I was so 
disturbed. Like, I don't know what to think, but that's usually how I want my audiences to leave the theater and be like, what the fuck did I just watch? I'm so disturbed. Not, not really, but a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. Like, like <laughs> I had on a spear. Yeah, I was going to say I had on a spear covered in blood. It's fine. On a spear covered in blood? Audience members vomiting in the vom. Yep. I love it. <laughs> sure. That sure did happen. Sure did. Um, anyway, any, any sort of final thoughts on this, this first bit with, uh, Julia and Lucetta? Um, I guess, well, I guess the beginning, I guess the beginning only because like, obviously just fits in more to the trope of, oh, well, when two women are alone, all they can talk about is the men in their lives. Um, (laughs) but I do find it interesting that like, just in terms of a, a moment before discussing that, you know, Um, Julia, the first thing she says is now we are alone. So my question is like, what, what was happening before that? And are they having this conversation because there was conversation of Julia suitors? Because presumably she would also be at that age where she would get married off to somebody. Yeah. I would, I would assume like, right. Like she's pretty, she's pretty young, but still. And I think that is something I, I didn't mention, but one of the, I've, I was reading um, the new Cambridge edition and there was something really interesting that they said in that is that this play has historically not worked in traditional commercial theaters. It just hasn't, it hasn't been a success where it's been super successful is when it's put on in universities. I mean, that's where, um, that's the only place I saw it was at my yeah. university it works with college students it works because in a certain way the argument of this editor is that it's a satire of a love story um which i thought was really interesting and we can like delve into that a bit more as we as we continue to go along but the idea i think that is essential is that all four of these lovers are very young i think that's very important to the story yeah sam isn't there an idea, at least when I was like trying to do a little bit of dramaturgy on this, that this wasn't actually performed in London at one of the major stages, but actually was performed at universities in this time period? There is a thought, because there is no performance record until the 1700s, there is a thought that perhaps this was not publicly performed and perhaps it was performed in a university setting. Um but it was known enough that uh, somebody mentioned it um, in a, someone mentioned it when they were talking about in 1598, Francis Mears praise of Shakespeare as a consummate writer of comedies and tragedies in his pallidus tamia for comedy witness his gentleman of Verona, his errors, his love labors lost, his love labors won, his Midsummer Night's Dream, his Merchant of Venice. So it's not like quite the complete thing, but at least by 1598, someone had seen it, you know, so that that is interesting. But I do think that that's important. The young it's these are about young men and young women and perhaps as young as 16, 15, 16 years old when the hormones be a raging. Shall we continue on? Because I want to get to this wonderful, super famous Julia speech with the letter, which I actually directed with a very young girl who was in middle school. This is the only part of the play that I've ever worked on. She was doing the letter speech. Um, it was, it was, it was 
a little bit disturbing, but sort of made sense to see a 12-year-old girl doing that speech. Um, but yeah, anyway, um, let's let's go on and we'll we'll just go through to the end of the scene. Thank you both. What would your ladyship? It's near dinner time. I would it were that you might kill your stomach on your meat and not upon your maid. What what is thou you uh took up so gingerly? Nothing. Why didst thou stoop then? To take a paper up that I let fall. And is that paper nothing? Nothing concerning me. Then let it lie for those that it concerns. Madam, it will not lie where it concerns, unless it have a false interpreter. Some love of yours hath writ, uh, some love of yours hath writ to you in rhyme. That I might sing it, madam, to a tune. Give me a note, your ladyship can set. As little by such toys as may be possible, best sing it to the tune of Light of Love. It is too heavy for so light a tune. Heavy? Be like it hath some burden then. Aye, and melodious were it. Would you sing it? And why not you? I cannot reach so high. Let's see your song. How now, minion? Keep tune there still, so you will sing it out. And yet methinks I do not like this tune. You do not? No, madam, tis too sharp. You, minion, are too saucy. Nay, now you are too flat, and mar the concord with too harsh a descant. There wanteth but a mean to fill your song. The mean is drowned with your unruly bass. Indeed, I bid the bass for Proteus. This babble shall not henceforth trouble me. Here is a coil with protestation. Go, get you gone, and let the papers lie. You would be fingering them to anger me. She makes it strange, but she would be best pleased to be so angered with another letter. Nay, would I were so angered with the same. Oh, hateful hands to tear such loving words, injurious wasps to feed on such sweet honey and kill the bees, bees that yield it with your stings. I'll kiss each several paper for amends. Oh, look, here's writ, kind Julia. Unkind Julia, as in revenge of thy ingratitude, I throw thy name against the bruising stones, trampling contemptuously on thy disdain. And here is writ, love-wounded Proteus. Poor wounded name, my bosom as a bed shall lodge thee till thy wound be thoroughly healed. And thus I search it with a sovereign kiss. But twice or thrice was Proteus written down, be calm, good wind, blow not a word away till I have found each letter in the letter, except mine own name, that some whirlwind bear unto a ragged, fearful hanging rock and, and throw it thence into the raging sea. Lo, here in one line, his name twice writ, poor forlorn Proteus, passionate Proteus to the sweet Julia. That I'll tear away. And yet... I will not, sith so prettily he couples it to his com uh, complaining names. Thus I will fold them one upon the other. Now kiss, embrace, contend, do what you will. 
Madam, dinner is ready and your father stays. Well, let us go. What? Shall these papers lie like telltales here? If you respect them, best to take them up. Nay, I was taken up for laying them down. Yet here they shall not lie for catching cold. I see you have a month's mind to them. Aye, madam, you may say what sights you see. I see things too, although you judge I wink. Come, come, we'll please you go. Lovely. Dude. Um, and wink here, very important, meaning shutting one's eyes, right? There's a really interesting, it was obviously like a, a very common phrase, like the sun, I, I wink at the sun. Um, didn't mean so much like winky winky as, as much as like shutting one's eyes. Um, oh my gosh. Julia just like no she doesn't and also I just have to say that monologue (laughs) is a bitch to cold read just like I'm just gonna I'm we're just gonna put that out there so I'm sorry guys like yeah yeah, she she's all over the place I mean because at this point like obviously jumping ahead to the monologue she's literally on the ground like putting pieces of paper back together after she's like she would rather like Lucetta think that she doesn't love Proteus for whatever reason then like you know just read the letter and you know like she tore it up like a crazy person i don't know that was an incomplete yeah. thought but you know what i mean <laughs> yeah no i i i mean it's it is funny like the level of physical comedy that is needed for that speech yeah well it's yeah, so, Mitch, it just, did you, did you a small point here i can't think of another example in shakespeare that is so of a speech that is so prop dependent. I mean, like it's everything has to do with specific things in that letter. It's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, if I'm recalling correctly in uh, Barry Edelstein's uh, Thinking Shakespeare book, he has a whole section where he goes through internal stage directions in Shakespeare and he uses this speech as an example about like, where do you stamp your foot? Where do you mm-hmm. tear it up? Where do you pick it up? Um, so you don't break the rhythm. Um, and it's just really, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting, uh, I, I think you're absolutely right, Mitch, that there is, there is, letters are really important in Shakespeare um, because they always contain information that is exclusive information, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Um, and so anytime a letter appears in Shakespeare, it's like the most important prop in that scene. And sometimes I think we can get a little bit casual with them because it's just like, oh yeah, I'm reading it, blah, blah, blah. But remembering that in this time, messengers were the only way that anyone ever got news. The importance of this letter and the exclusiveness of this letter, you know, um, is, is important um, to, the, to the character. And then of course, you know, Lucetta coming in and saying, sort of like, yeah, she's, I love the way you did that, Jane, with the like, she would be blessed, please, to be so angered with another letter. Like, I know, I know my girl. Like, there's something really sweet to me about that relationship. Because it's not, you know, it's not like, oh, God, you know, there's something just like, I know her, you know, there's something, there's something a, a, a warm knowledge. I feel like that's the phrase that's running through my head between these two characters. Well, it like feels, they know each other. Yeah, it feels very maternal. <laughs> you know, like Julia, a lot of this, like Julia, just feel like, mom, get out of my room. Like, don't try to talk to me. <laughs> like, whatever. 
no, I don't like him, mom. You know, it's, it's, it is a very like familiar and familial relationship between the two of them. Mm-hmm. I um, think there's something interesting too about the, it's the, the letters in Shakespeare being metatextual, right? And in a way yeah. they're, I mean, they always are like sparks to action, right? Or they always contain some like really important information that, that will shift the plot or shift a character's mindset or choices. Um, but there's also this like value of the written word that he is yeah. always like pushing through. That's almost like all this stuff that I'm writing, like, this is really important, right? Yeah. It's really, this horrible. It's both this internal kind of, you know, anger at herself for having torn it up. And oh my gosh, I've like ruined it now because I tore up yeah. the letter. Um, <laughs> as though like the feelings went away because the pages got, you know, are in tatters. Um, yeah. right? like the, but this power of the written word is such an interesting um the, you know, theme and, and he's making it very literal. In, mm-hmm. in this I love that Jane. That's fantastic. Yeah. That there is, a, there's something sacred about the written word. Right. And then it also, to me, um, this just occurred to me. I don't know why this just occurred to me, but there is something that Proteus will do of ripping up his own oath, right. That we're sort of seeing we're seeing her literally do what he's going to sort of metaphysically do um, to her in, in a few acts. Um, and so this idea of, of, of breaking something that was once whole, um, I think it r- runs very strongly through, through the play. Um, I have a question. Do we, do we assume that this is the first letter that she's received from him? I think so. Because that also adds like another level of preciousness to yeah. the physical letter. Yeah. And the fact that she impulsively just tore it up to bits because she freaked out. Yeah. Absolutely. I remember the first time I got a little, it wasn't a love letter, but it was like a love post-it. <laughs> and it was like really, I was like, I really it was awkward because I did not at all feel the same way. Um, but it was also like, it was really cool to like receive a little post-it, um, that had stick drawings on it. (laughs) It's like very funny. Um, I was about to say, did you freak out and tear it up too? No, I did not tear it up. (laughs) Um, but yeah, there, there is something like really, yeah. Uh, sorry. Gilroy, did you did you have something as well? To um, I had a question about which version we were using because I just now noticed the amount of par- parentheticals that have been floating around, and I wanted to know if that was unique to this particular text as a Shakespeare play, or if it what version we were using and and what they yeah. mean here because it, it's just been a lot of. Absolutely. Great question. It is actually from the folio. This is um, I've taken uh from the the wonderful oh of course i don't know what the but it's the university of west virginia i want to say they have a fantastic website where you I think can it's get virginia virginia I think it's UVA. Okay. yeah apologies virginia yeah university of virginia has an incredible website that has um usually a huge like for each play there's a slate of different editions and so basically what i did is i took their modern edition I copy pasted that and then I reformatted it. And then I went through, 
because I'm a crazy person and changed a lot of the capitalizations and the punctuation to match the original folio. Um, I may start doing actually just giving everyone the folio script because I find that really interesting to go off of. Um, and having done a little bit of work in the last couple of years on original practice and original pronunciation, I actually think you get a lot of juice out of that. Um, but yeah, this is very close to the, to the folio. Um, yeah. It's a lot of parentheticals. Yeah. <laughs> like it's, it's, it's a lot. And, and I just think it's really, I think it's really interesting. I think that when they show up, it's interesting. And I, I just, I, I was wondering for the two of you that were reading the scene when you had those I madam and what was the other thing I minion like what did having yeah. those in parentheticals rather than being like commas like what did those mean to you guys because I just I'm fascinated by this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, because uh, it does a, a, a parenthesis has a very different feeling to it than a comma. It's almost like. To me, it almost feels like it's being said under the breath, like under, yeah. you know, like almost like, okay, bitch, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, it's <laughs> like, it's not, it's, a, it almost feels like a bit of insight into the internal monologue that's happening mm. in each of the lines, if that makes any sense. I like that's that. And that like Lucetta is forced to say like, madam, you know, like there's mm -hmm. something, <laughs> That's that's great. I, I was actually just editing uh, Danny Reddick in our Henry the Fourth Part Two as Davy, and she did this wonderful thing where every time, because the character said "sir" so many times to Justice Shallow, every time she said "sir," it was like she was stopping herself to say "sir," and is sir and it's like this really funny but it also tells you a lot about the the power dynamic between these two characters that even though perhaps the social status there's a difference in social status that one person is actually the the more high status in the relationship and sometimes um yeah like i i know i've said it before on this podcast but you know one of my my favorite characters is the super low status king or the high status servant and like how how they how they exist and how people react to them <laughs> in that existence is really fascinating. Um, yeah. Yeah, it is. It is interesting because, you know, Madam's not in parentheses every time, but you see it more and more towards the end of the scene. Yeah. And then I even have in the letter monologue, but wind is in parentheses as well. Um, it's almost like an apostrophe, right? It's almost like a, an, uh, in, in that case, it's like you're addressing the wind. Mm -hmm. I think it's a way of of indicating an a positive just in in the sentence. So like literally, Sam, you said, Sam Blaine, you said something about it being like under your breath. I think that is literally yeah. what they're trying to indicate in this notation. I find it really helpful. Um, and I think the fact that it shows up in this scene so much, yeah, is just an interesting thing. Like they're not speaking super direct, straightforward, just like lines of text. They're stopping to go. And then, but what I said is this, you know, yeah. it's like <laughs> they yeah. do keep going back and forth. Interesting negotiations there in terms of meaning. Um, fantastic. Well, any sort of final thoughts on our, our lovely lady scene? I also wanted to to just sort of, 
flag, and this is maybe just a early Shakespeare thing that we've never had so far. We've gone through two scenes in the play and we never have two more than two people talking at once. And like maybe Shakespeare didn't quite understand how to have a scene with three people in it. <laughs> Sam, can I, yeah. Can I lay down a theory? Because I've, I've thought about this. Yeah. I think that nobody wanted to spend that much money on actors for a new playwright. <laughs> there you go. I'm not even kidding with that. That's really interesting. I mean, and these were, as as was brought up in a meeting that I was at uh, last week, something that we frequently forget. It's, it's very easy to romanticize the works of Shakespeare. They were very much a commercial venture. These were, these plays were about making money. Um, and I think sometimes we, we forget that. And it's useful to remember that that was the point. <laughs> These were commercial ventures. Um, <laughs> it doesn't, yeah, it doesn't take away from their brilliance, but it's important to sort of have that as an understanding. I, I think when you're, especially when you're producing them too. Um, well, wonderful. Let's meet uh, Pentino and Antonio, who is Proteus's father because uh, Shakespeare loves the name Antonio. <laughs> He does. Antonio <laughs> shows up in every play. <laughs> I know. Our, I think a... our our friends at uh, Seven Stages Shakespeare in New Hampshire um, did an Antoniad, I believe, where <laughs> they did like all the plays that had Antonio and sort of turned it into like Antonio's great journey <laughs> through the plays. <laughs> um, Anyway, uh, let's let's meet these new characters. So let's just uh, initially go until we get to Proteus's entrance. So we'll just read that that first bit. Have fun. Mm -hmm. Tell me, Pantino, what sad talk was that wherewith my brother held you in the cloister? It was of his nephew Proteus, your son. Why? What of him? He wondered that your lordship would suffer him to spend his youth at home, while other men of slender reputation put forth their sons to seek preferment out, some to the wars to try their fortune there, some to discover islands far away, some to the studious universities. For any or for all these exercises, he said that Proteus, your son, was meet, and did request me to importune you to let him spend his time no more at home, which would be great impeachment to his age, and having known no travel in his youth. Nor needst thou much importune me to that whereon this month I have been hammering. I have considered well his loss of time, and how he cannot be a perfect man, not being tried and tutored in the world. Experience is by industry achieved, and perfected by the swift course of time. And tell me, whither were I best to send him? I think your lordship is not ignorant how his companion, youthful Valentine, attends the emperor in his royal court. I know it well. For good, I think your lordship sent him thither. There shall he practice tilts and tournaments, hear sweet discourse, converse with noblemen, and be an eye of every exercise worthy his youth and nobleness of birth. I like thy counsel. Well hast thou advised. And that thou mayst perceive how well I like it, the execution of it shall make known. Even with the speediest exposition, I will dispatch him to the emperor's court. Tomorrow, may it please you, Don Alfonso, with other gentlemen of good esteem, are journeying to salute the emperor and to commend their service to his will. Good company. With them shall Proteus go. And in good time, now will we break with him. Lovely. Okay. 
fabulous. We are meeting our first of two fathers in this play. We heard about Julia's father, like your father waits for you, but we never meet him. Um, I am always interested in generational differences in these plays and how, what that relationship is, because I think parents and children had very different relationships in Shakespeare's time than the way that I think we think of parent-child relationships. Um, so yeah, um, Miles and Jane, what are your sort of impressions of these characters? Like, who are they? And what is their kind of working relationship? Well, it's, uh, do you want to go first, Jane? Go for it, Miles. Well, uh, it just, uh, I mean, we don't really uh, get a lot, but it seems like uh, at the very least, they, uh, Antonio and Pantino move in the uh, same circles. They, uh, they're kind of comfortable uh, talking about these kind of familial matters with each other. Yeah. Yeah. And they seem, they both seem kind of, uh, I mean, Antonio, at least, he seems uh, kind of, uh, he seems pretty uh, thoughtful like in the sense that uh, Pantino tells him like, oh, your brother has been, your brother's worried about Proteus and how he's not like uh, kind of really move, move, getting him moving his way in the world, like uh, all the other men his age. And uh, Antonio yeah. says, yeah, I've been thinking about that myself. Yeah. And, it's interesting to me that they're worried about Proteus, right? This yeah. is not one, not two, but three people have talked about that we don't meet the uncle, but three people are discussing being concerned with sort of Proteus' lack of leaving the nest, as it were. Mm, yeah. <laughs> you know, and I think that's that's a red flag to me, right? That there's there's something else going on that maybe we didn't get in the in the first scene. Mm. Um yeah, Jane, do you have any uh, sort of thoughts on Pantino? Well, it's sort of interesting um, going from Lucetta to Pantino, um, sort of yeah. yet another servant, and the master is asking for advice. Right? Yeah. Like, clearly, the servants are the ones who are consulted. What should yeah. I do, my son? Well, you should send him here. Ah, yes, I will do that. You know, it's just sort of a funny, like, who do you think yeah. I should marry? Oh, okay, interesting. Uh, I'm not yeah. sure I feel about that one, but uh, tell me more. It's just it's kind of funny the way they react to their servants. Um, yeah, now that I uh, now that I look at it more uh, more closely, it does seem like uh, Pantino is a servant to Antonio. Yeah, but I I think a very high status servant, so yes. not like a, I, I I get the sense of like Carson the butler kind of feeling. Yeah, you know, like the manager of the households. Um, mm -hmm who knows the family very, very well. Um, Izzy, I wanted to bring you into this conversation because I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe you you played Pentino, right? In the, in the production? Oh, I did, oh my God. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, I think what's interesting about that character is <laughs> most of the scenes they're in, they're fetching people. Um, and they're in a hurry. <laughs> so, um, speed. <laughs> um, so it's very much like, this is the only time where they're not fetching someone, I think. Um, and so it's just, this is the only time we see them in that sense. And I think one thing that's interesting to me, cause I do think you can 
obviously it's acting you can interpret lines however you want but I do think it's really funny how Antonio is like yeah I've been thinking about that too um where where do you think they should we should go send him like where where should we go (laughs) it seems a little bit like oh no should I have been thinking about that as opposed to like actually like yeah I really have been thinking of that because he doesn't like Antonio doesn't bring forth any ideas he's just like yeah what do you yeah I agree with that's good that's good I like that um (laughs) and um and I kind of like the idea that Pantino might be like kind of slowly just like so I have this (laughs) <laughs> oh yeah no I know it was your idea but you should do this okay cool <laughs> I also get the idea like I just like the idea that maybe uh Proteus and Pantino don't like each other very much <laughs> mm, that is definitely an interesting interpretation um that I that was actually my question is like what is Pantino's relationship with Proteus does he really feel like, oh my God, I don't want to deal with this kid anymore? Or is it like, is there something else going on? Um, Izzy, something you just said made me wonder if at the beginning, um, if if Pantino was not actually talking with, about Proteus with the uncle, <laughs> like if he just sort of used it as the way in, like, you know, let me give you some advice, but it, it sounded better if it came from yeah. somebody of equal uh, status rather than from the servant. But it was, it was, it, it, it's funny, you know, you wonder, you don't really know what was happening in the moment before he says that that's what they were talking about Proteus and, you know, getting off out into the world and becoming a man, but maybe he just used that as made up I, context. I do kind of like that because it kind of gives Pantino a little bit more character in a, in a way like that, that would use the opportunity of the master seeing him to speak to his master's brother in order to initiate a conversation in which maybe this is his agenda that um, is, is being pushed, which is really, really interesting. Sam, you look pained. But you Tell guys, there's no, there's no subtext in Shakespeare. Um, <laughs> but Actually, what I think is really why I, I'm sort of in love with this idea, actually, because I think it's really interesting that Pantino's first line isn't, we were talking about your son. It was of his nephew, <laughs> as, as if, as like, that's the least direct way to say that we're talking about your kid. And then Antonio's first thing question is why? Um, so I do think that there might be something there that Antonio doesn't know that it there's a problem. But I'm also just obsessed with the language in this scene because it is the most clear, direct language we've had in the play so yes. far. We are with yeah. two adults, finally, two yeah. men, <laughs> two men, let's be two male adults. And um, <laughs> suddenly the language is not overly written. Um, it's very clear, it's very direct. Um, you get a sense of what's going on. You manage to keep the verse but at the same time, information is passed off in a really, really clear way. Yeah. Um, and I do think that this is interesting that after, pardon Shakespeare, what I kind of think of as a little bit overwritten with the kids, I might want to back off my earlier statements being like, uh, look at this young, immature playwright. <laughs> like, maybe he's actually writing these younger characters as being immature and overly wordy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you finally get to the serious men, things become very direct and very clear and very easy to follow. 
That is a really interesting point because I certainly find that Pantino, Antonio, and the Duke are some of the easiest characters to, they jump off the page for me in terms of like what they're saying and what their intention is, if that makes any, if that makes sense. Um, Whereas with our little quartet, I can, it, I think it's very easy to get lost and, and oh, how, how romantic that is that that's, you know, that's how we are when we're teenagers. Right. Um, but yeah, I, I do, I really do like this idea, Jane, that sort of Pantino, this is like the long con kind of thing <laughs> as it were. It's like, let's like, let's like give Proteus and maybe it isn't like we need like, I want Proteus out. Maybe it's like this kid needs some direction. Like this kid needs focus and he doesn't have that here. You know, it doesn't necessarily have to be a malicious intent. It could also be like this kid needs a different environment in order to thrive. Um, and interesting that some of that language from the very first uh speech of the play sort of creeps in right what proteus was saying about living sluggardized at home he's like i'm going off to the world I'm, it's my gap year you know like and um <laughs> and it's like it seems to be that antonio and pentino are sort of being like yeah he needs a gap year like <laughs> he needs he needs to like you know go build houses in guatemala or something like this kid needs He's got it too cushy right now. Um, there is an economy in this language as well that is really, that has not, that was not there in the first two scenes, right? There is, there are not a lot of repetitions. There are very clear sentences that are driven by verbs um, and not wordplay. Um, were there any um, thoughts before we bring Proteus in, uh, uh, additional thoughts uh, on Antonio and Pentino. Well, uh, it seemed uh, going off of that. It seems to me that if uh, if Antonio, uh, hmm. and even if Antonio has been uh, thinking about this uh, for a while with regards to like uh, Proteus having purpose in his life. And of uh, the fact that uh, that he needed, I guess he needed uh, the Pantino prodding him in a way. Yeah. Kind of, would be kind of interesting to. Uh, I mean, we get some sense of their. Uh, we get some sense of his and Proteus's relationship when they talk, but it would be going uh, to be really interesting to think about uh, what kind of what what Proteus's home life is like in general. Absolutely. Thank you for bringing that up. That is actually something that I was thinking about is like, we rarely in this play, see the interaction between parents and children, yeah. right? The Duke and Sylvia have very little stage time together. And Antonio and Proteus only have this tiny little section that we're about to read. And it is very much like, this is, this is the law. I'm laying down the law and you will follow my decision, which is interesting that Proteus is like, well, I can't do anything. My dad said it. And then we contrast that with Sylvia who absolutely refuses 
to obey her father. So it is just interesting to note that these the the father daughter and the father son relationships that we're seeing are are presented very differently, um, which I think is going to be important to us when we get to Act Two and Three. Um, fantastic. Let's let's bring Proteus in and let's just go through to the to the end of the scene. Miles, could you read? Uh, from Good Company, With Them Shall Proteus Go. Good Company, With Them Shall Proteus Go. And in good time, now will we break with him. Sweet love, sweet lines, sweet life. Here is her hand, the agent of her heart. Here is her oath for love, her honor's pawn. Oh, that our fathers would applaud our loves to seal our happiness with their consents. Oh, heavenly Julia. How now? What letter are you reading there? May it please your lordship, tis a word or two of commendations sent from Valentine, delivered by a friend that came from him. Lend me the letter. Let me see what news. There is no news, my lord, but that he writes how happily he lives, how well-beloved and daily graced by the emperor, wishing me with him, partner of his fortune. And how stand you affected to his wish? As one relying on your lordship's will, and not depending on his friendly wish. My will is something sorted with his wish. Muse not that I thus suddenly proceed, for what I will, I will, and there an end. I'm resolved that thou shalt spend some time with Valentinus in the emperor's court, what maintenance he from his friends receives, like exhibition thou shalt have from me. Tomorrow be in readiness to go. Excuse it not, for I am peremptory. My lord, I cannot be so soon provided. Please you, deliberate a day or two. Look what thou wants shall be sent after thee. No more of stay. Tomorrow thou must go. Come on, Pantino. You shall be employed to hasten on his expedition. Thus have I shunned the fire for fear of burning, and drenched me in the sea where I am drowned. I feared to show my father Julia's letter, lest he should take exceptions to my love. And with the vantage of mine own excuse, hath he accepted most against my love. Oh, how this spring of love resembleth the uncertain glory of an April day, which now shows all the beauty of the sun, and by and by a cloud takes all away. Sir Proteus, your father calls for you. He is in haste, therefore I pray you, go. Why, this it is. My heart accords thereto, and yet a thousand times it answers no. Wow, so I'm just struck by the formality of the interaction between Proteus and his dad. Um, your lordship, not father. Your lordship, he never calls him father. Um and also, I was just tracking the you and thou, right? They both use the formal you with each other until Antonio tells him, you're going away, and he switches to thou, and he stays in thou until he exits. Um, and then he switches to a more formal you with Pantino, right? At the, at the end there. So that, to me, tells you a lot about the power dynamics in this scene. Um, uh, for the three of you, what were your sort of um, thoughts, impressions as, as you were going through? Did anything jump out for you? Uh, well, uh, well, kind of 
Well, mentioning the uh, use of uh, you as opposed to a thou, and it does seem yeah. like a uh, does seem kind of like a uh, power move. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, it does. I guess kind of like a uh, I guess like a more uh, like a, I guess I kind of thought of uh, kind of brought, brings to mind uh, Kurtwood Smith and Dead Poet Society. I mean, this is mm. kind of it's a more uh, it's it's a more reserved version, of course, but there is kind of uh, it's kind of just a more subtle reminder that uh, I'm your father and you're uh, you're going to do as I tell you. I, I love his justification for what I will, I will, and there an end. Like, yes. <laughs> whoa, okay. It's, it's just, no discussion, kinda... no family conference. Like, <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, and 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 Proteus hasn't objected yet at that yeah. point, right? That speech that you're looking at of Antonio's is is first of all where he switches to thou is that yeah. speech. Yes, and he exactly. just multiple times in that speech, like, s- says, and that's the end of the conversation. Yes. I think we're getting some insight into why Proteus is the slug that he is, which is because (laughs) nobody's ever said no to him. Nobody's ever told him what to do. Mm. He's like, and now I almost feel like his, like Antonio is in this place of, oh shit, my brother's talking about my kid now. And my servant is talking about my kid now. Okay. I better take bold action. And I think he does all this, this um, preemptive kind of, framing context setting for his son to say like you know and even says um muse not that i thus suddenly proceed like yeah. clearly this is not something he normally does yes yeah he, it's almost like he just got this like okay i gotta be bold right now and i gotta just do it yeah because, and i i think it's out of character for him i think I, is like hey dad wait just wait a couple days and he's probably used to dad going okay his dad's like no yeah it does make me wonder like what the silent reactions of Proteus are during this speech. And perhaps that's what's fueling the insistence. If Proteus is like, no, and he's like, no, 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 no. Listen yes. to me. You know, um, I wonder if that's Shakespeare giving us an internal stage direction that that Proteus is sort of reacting with shock or trying to protest, but is not allowed to speak until the speech is, is over. Um, yeah. It, it's also interesting before that though that Proteus lies. Yeah. Um, right. Oh he, yeah. It does feel a little bit to me like my instinct is actually sort of the opposite. It, it it feels like if Proteus was used to being able to manipulate his father into getting what he wants, mm. perhaps yeah. he would just out with it. Maybe not. I don't think it's definitive. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, like I, yeah, I felt very aware. Um, during the, or my instinct was that Proteus objecting was the thing that was unusual. Um, mm-hmm. But it's like either of those is unusual, right? Either Antonio laying down the law or Proteus objecting is unusual. And there's a choice to be made there, I think. Well, Jane, I think your point about how Proteus might be a, a person that's not used to hearing no is really important because I think it feeds in a bit to what Gilroy was saying earlier about like the nice guy trope and how it can contribute to some of Proteus's responses later on in the in the play. I think it's also possible that no demands have ever been made of this kid, right? Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, that 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 actually he hasn't had any responsibilities and nothing has been asked of him. Um, yeah, Sam. 
Well, the difference between spoiled and coddled, I think, is like a pretty big yeah. one. And I don't get the sense that Proteus is spoiled, but I do get the sense that he's a little bit coddled. And in terms of we're talking about formality here, also this whole idea of, of how formal things get with the you and the thou's, um, I think it's, and not because I'm you know playing Valentine here, but I find it really interesting that Antonio refers to him as, uh, I'm gonna butcher this, Valentinus. He uses the full Latin there yeah. instead, of, instead of the name. And, and in my conception of that probably Valentine's name is Valentinus, but everybody refers to him by the more common Valentine. And for the father here to use like the direct name shows, I think, like a certain sense of formality. Um, we're in that like sort of uh, beach bum image that you showed before. <laughs> like I get the sense that Valentine might be the spoiled one who's got to go out and do whatever he wants. Well, mm. this is a very strict household you will do mm. your studying and i don't care what valentinus is doing tonight like you are going out to like I, there is a sense of formality there and i find that use of valentinus it like really stuck out at me um mm. and i can't remember off the top of my head does valentinus get used again in the does any other character use the latin i don't recall any other character doing that but again this is a play that i am that's Still a real learning. character <laughs> choice. You know what I mean? From yeah. a writer to put in. Yeah. Yeah, Mitch. Yeah, I, I'm I'm sort of changing my mind here in that I think there's a way to have our cake and eat it too, uh, sort of, Jane, which is I think there is some textual evidence that this interaction has just never happened before, right? Mm, Sam Blin was suggesting yeah. that maybe the law has just never been attempted to be laid down. And so Proteus has never uh, had an opportunity to um object and that might account for Antonio if Antonio has never done this before that might account for why he becomes so <laughs> antagonistic right off the bat and that also might account for Proteus being a little bit feeling a little bit off in that moment um mm. and I think earlier in the scene with just Pantino and Antonio there's some justification there's some evidence I think that Antonio has not involved himself in um Proteus's life yeah, yeah, they, I do kind of, uh, there's kind of the uh, distance, uh, kind of the distance you uh, see here, you know, does, uh, it do, that does lend weight to that interpretation, and uh, I think, and I guess, I, I thought, but maybe like, uh, maybe if using the full uh, Valentinus, then uh, it might, it might be interesting to play, it might be interesting to play that as like, uh, just kind of, a very subtle thing like uh oh, this this uh, young man is a real go-getter if only i had a son like him <laughs> and we see that's oh my god because we're, we're we just in our tabling release we're just finishing henry the fourth part two. Oh, i wish my son were someone else you know oh my god the saga of the history plays um is is such a theme that that does get explored right in Shakespeare so so much um it's particularly the father-son relationship that tends to be a point of focus um Izzy and Colin one or the other or the third <laughs> um it's Izzy here um <laughs> I think 
<laughs> just one other thing that w you can read into that name because I just oh, guys I haven't had a good discussion like this in a while let's go but um also <laughs> something that I find interesting about using the full name is it's also like that complete disconnect of the parent and the child like no one calls him that yeah you're gonna and it's not it's like what's your friend's name he's great i love him what's his name uh sam and then there's this like no no it's not it's john or whatever yeah. and that's another layer that i kind of get from this and because we've already like especially when we were talking about like maybe he's thought about this but not deeply like maybe he admires valentine but is never really involved in that so it's like mm -hmm. valentine Tinas, yes, that one, that one. Like, I've I know I've heard his name once, and that's what it is. And um, <laughs> I don't know. I kind of get that vibe too, especially because you know, like, I'm, I'm looking for the comedy here, but it's 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 comedic, but it's also kind of just sad. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, and I don't know. I feel like we've probably all had that situation where like someone important in your life, and then like a family member just doesn't remember their name. <laughs> Sorry if that was ever me is. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. We're talking parentals. No. <laughs> Love you guys. Love you. It, it is the only time in the play that Valentine's name would be said that way. And it's mm. really fascinating because his name is said twice before you get the Latinized version of it, yeah. even in the scene. And I just think it's just like a wicked little acting choice. Like it's such like... Yeah. <laughs> Like I would probably be sitting down with my director and being like, I'm basing so many choices off of this one thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. It's like, it's just, it's just such a, it's, it's, it's a, it's a gift and it just, it sticks out. And it's just, I think like, it's just a really little interesting things like that always pop out to me like really hard. Yeah. Can, can I bring yeah, up something ahead. about um, Pantino and Proteus's relationship? So it's yeah. the, the last two speeches of the play. Pantino comes back on stage and says, you know, Sir Proteus, your father calls for you. Go, go to your dad. Proteus then says, why this it is, my heart accords there too. And yet a thousand times it answers no. So I'm going to do what he tells me to do. I'm going to go. But my heart really doesn't want to. Right. I mean, I think that's yeah. that's the meaning of those lines. Okay. Yes. So totally possible that Pantino says his line and then leaves, or her line and then leaves. Yeah. Uh, also possible that Proteus is um, and yet a thousand times it answers no is an aside to the audience. But like in this version that you've given us, neither of those is indicated. And yeah. so if Proteus says to Pantino, okay, I'm yeah, I'm gonna do this, but like I really don't want to. Like that, I think that's like a big window into that relationship, right? Clearly they're close then, like he yeah. can express those things. And maybe Pantino is somebody who people talk to, <laughs> you know, yeah. Antonio's brother, Antonio, Proteus, I don't know. I, I think that's a great point. I, I could totally be wrong and Shakespeare scholars come at me now if I'm wrong, but I don't think there are a lot of asides that are actually written into the folio. I think most of the asides are editorial editions. Mm. Um, and I'm always really interested in exploring both sides of that. Like, for example, just sorry, I'm, there's going to be a lot of Julius Caesar references over the next couple months because that's what that's the text I'm working on right now. 
But there is this wonderful moment. It's in the second scene with Caesar. Caesar comes back in after we have the first long Brutus Cassius scene. And Caesar says to Mark Antony, let me have men about me that are fat. Young Cassius has a lean and hungry look. And most editions turn that into an aside. I think it says a lot about the character relationship. If that is said while looking at Cassius in full hearing of everyone in that space, right? So that there is a power dynamic there because Cassius talks so much or Cassius, depending on the scansion, um, about feeling that he, that Julius Caesar does not love him, right? That he has no love for him and that he does love Brutus. There is something that complicates the play if Cassius is hearing this and if Caesar is consciously saying that it changes the relationship right so I think you're absolutely spot on to to bring this up that there's actually there's really interesting choices to be made here about who hears what when right that's when I'm directing any show that's the question I'm (laughs) I'm constantly asking if there are people on stage who are not speaking, what are they hearing and what are they not hearing? Because that's going to tell you a lot and you build your world around that, right? Um, sorry to go on and on about that. Um, my friends, any sort of closing thoughts on act one before we do our read through? It's a really low stakes act one. <laughs> it it's like the stakes are terribly low for the end of an act one. In terms of like, yeah. I'm going to Millen. Like I'm in love. Like the person who loves me. Like there's like like the drama hasn't really kicked in yet mm-hmm. by the end of this act one. Does anybody? It, am I am I alone in this or is this like no? A- I feel like if you're a teenager and your dad just basically told you like you have to leave your girl and you're going to military school, you'd be like no. <laughs> like that, that's that's where my head went. I think yeah, that's right. I also think, well, we don't, yeah, I think we don't see them together as part of why it might to the audience feel very low stakes at this moment. Cause I, yeah. I had the same impression as you, Sam, cause we don't see Proteus and Julia together. And like, clearly no, that's we what we're supposed to care about in this moment, I think. Yeah. yeah but it's so true even, because we, we have, yeah, we don't know what their relationship is like. But I'm even thinking through like other comedies and the stakes just, are high there's a war going on and, and the victorious people are bringing home the captured guy and yeah. you know or or uh, you know there's four lovers that are all trying to do a thing and it's complicated because yeah. there's four like right now the stakes like yes and you're right the team thing is absolutely true i think every young person like goes through that the military school analogy is actually great and perfect (laughs) but still for the sense of like that is so kitchen sinky for shakespeare um (laughs) you know like um and i'm just kind of i'm both really tickled by it because i i I personally tend to like really low stakes dramas in a weird way because i think that there's a lot of humanity no, it's true. I Sam, I see your face go like really, and I like. But my favorite to take it to the most maximal. My favorite of the Marvel movies is the one that has the lowest stakes in it. Really, there's no the world is not threatened. There's like a bunch of just familial drama between two characters. But I, I just think it's really fascinating by the end of Act One 
the drama has not kicked into high gear yet. Um, yeah, I, I would maybe just tweak that statement to say the conflict has not kicked in totally. Because I think there's a there's a huge like dramatic impulse with this final bit, although it's really interesting that it seems like such a short reaction, like it's such a short speech. And I think that's something to clock that Shakespeare is a young writer, like is, is not writing super, super long speeches like he's going to get to. Although pr there are a couple scenes that is, is just Proteus talking to the audience that are a bit longer, but still not like Richard II, I have been studying how I may, you know, like two, two page long speeches. There is a, okay, let's keep moving. But the, yeah, I feel, I feel like there is drama, but there isn't conflict. And I think that's what makes me be like, okay, so what's next? What's going on? You know, <laughs> I, I, I want to turn the page. I want to go to act two. Um, great. Well, thank you all.